Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and on the side, I'm also the host of The Paul Garcia Show, a show on which I speak to remarkable people from central Illinois about their lives, experiences, and insights. That is available on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. But today on Catholic Spirit Radio, I am speaking with the one and only Scott Pelican, who is an official NASA Solar System Ambassador. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be down here seeing you guys. We are happy to have you. So, as I said, you are a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Now, what exactly does that entail? It sounds pretty important. Well, the Solar System uh, Ambassador Program is actually 25 years old this year. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary. And it's a, a group of volunteers from across the nation um, that shares uh, the latest science and discoveries of NASA and their missions. Um, we are NASA enthusiasts um, from all across the country. Uh, we've had, we've had um, an astronaut who was an ambassador. We, we've had a nun um, who was an ambassador How and, about that? and all kinds of people um, in between. Uh, in those um, 25 years, I think I saw that the ambassador program has held over 60,000 events uh, throughout the country and reached out to roughly 12 million people hmm. um, with news, the good news uh, on what's going on at NASA. Um, and the qualifications really are that you have to have a passion for NASA. You um, have to have a desire to learn, to be diligent in how you prepare and then present uh, events uh, to local groups. Um, I applied uh, in 2020 when I retired. Um, I thought it would be a great opportunity. Um, I was rejected, which kind of bummed me out a little bit. Got that letter. Um, and I thought to myself, well, let's give it one more try. So I sent in the application again. And what do you know? They, um, they accepted me. Uh, at the beginning of this year, um, of course, many of my friends responded with, boy, that NASA, they'll take anybody down there. <laughs> um, and after um, about a month's worth of training, which was um, which was uh, quite intensive, actually, with NASA on a number of things, um, they released me to go ahead and get my name out there in the public. Um, I'm from the South Peru area. Um, we put something in the paper and they warned us um, that when you put something out there that you are available to do <laughs> this your phone's going to start ringing, and it certainly has. I've mm. had a lot of people contact me to do programs, and Catholic Spirit Radio was one of them. Got a hold of me to come on down and, and talk to you guys today, so it's it's great to be here. Awesome. And like I said, we're very happy to have you, and I myself am deeply curious about NASA and space as a whole. And I want to ask, you know, you, you said that a serious curiosity and passion for NASA and space exploration, perhaps, is a prerequisite in order to get accepted into this program. So how far back does your passion for space, maybe more specifically NASA, go? Well, I, I just turned 64. Um, you look I, great, by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> Retirement will do that to you. <laughs> um, and um, I would say right around when I was 10 years old, maybe nine years old, so we're talking 1967, 68 was when uh, first the Mercury program with the original seven astronauts was taking off. And then the Gemini program, which was the next step in space exploration, was really capturing my attention, along with the, uh, my boyhood um, neighbor friend. Um, and what we did was, for some reason, one day we decided we would write a letter to NASA uh, at that age. Um and we said, we are really interested in the space program. Uh, 
And we wonder if you guys have anything you could send us in the mail that's cool about NASA. And boy, I tell you, they sent us stuff. I think we probably addressed it, NASA, Washington, D.C., and it got there, you know, <laughs> amazingly. Um, and they sent back glossy photos of the astronauts. They sent back posters of the rockets, everything, patches of the missions. NASA was very smartly, they knew that they had to really publicize the program to get the, the public to accept it and spend the money on it. And boy, did they ever send us a bunch of stuff and we were hooked and I was hooked and we kept writing and we would send it to Goddard Space Flight or we'd send it out to another NASA location, um, Cape Canaveral, things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, more stuff would come and more stuff would come and we accumulated all this information and that just put the seed in me and, and it grew and my passion for NASA um, was there. And then of course, everything started very, very, started happening very, very fast as far as getting mm-hmm. to the moon. Um, when and, did we land on the moon? If you don't mind me asking, you were 10 years old, 1967, when all this is happening. That when would have did- been um, when I was 10 years at right. And within perhaps two years, July 20th, uh, 1969, we walked on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, the program accelerated very, very quickly um, because of President Kennedy's um, goal to put a man on the moon before the end of that, that decade. Um, and it was an amazing time, um, for all of us who remember it. Um, and I was hooked for life. Um, obviously like everything else, as you go through life, there's, there's periods where you wane in your interest in things, you know, um, we went through the NASA because of a budget constraints. Um, we, we got up to Apollo 17 that walked on the moon. We had scheduled Apollo 18, Apollo 19, but those were canceled because of budget cuts at that point. The, the public had lost interest and therefore um, their, their congressmen, senators, and, and people in government lost interest also. So the funding wasn't there. But NASA uh, continued on, went into the space shuttle program. Unfortunately, we had the two space shuttle disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, One with a teacher on it, correct? Right, Chris McAuliffe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually know a, a, a teacher up in La Salle, Peru, who was a finalist in the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, she almost made it um, to that seat. Quite a story. Um, and I think after the space shuttle program, I myself lost some interest, you know. Um, but then recently, with everything going on in space, you know, now we've got private space companies going up and everything. And my, mm-hmm. my interest was, was renewed in the last few years. And... I happened to sit in on an event during the pandemic at our local library about the space program. And it was another solar system ambassador. I believe he was from down in Bourbon A and he was talking about women in space. So I thought I'd click on and listen to it. And at the end, he mentioned the solar system ambassador program. And I thought, why not? Why not? So I applied and I told you that story already. Um, But that's where I first heard heard about the program. So, So here I am. Wonderful. And now you, you briefly touched on it. In 1969 was the last time man went onto the moon and it was from, you know, the United States of America. Well, said- actually, 1972, we, we had, there were more missions um, where in the end, 12 men actually walked on the moon through 1972. Oh, God. The original well, landing was 69. Okay. So, but, but you said the reason that we haven't, you hear people talk about this all the time. Why haven't we been back to the moon? Is it aliens? Is it this or that and the other? It's because of budget cuts, you said. Right. We couldn't get the financing, Um, the public support for that. Is that correct? You know, it's a very, I think a lot of very tough decisions about space are made all the time by NASA. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we weren't, we weren't at the moon, but we were still going into space all that time. 
um, with unmanned orbiters, unmanned landers, uh, things like that. Always space stuff was going on. But the enormous amount of money that it takes to go to the moon and land men safely on the moon and return them to Earth safely. Um, again, the public had lost interest at that point. And um, the, the ability to convince um, Congress that it was worth going, sending two more guys back to the moon um, just faded away. But we are going back to the moon. That is, that's on the, that's going to happen. When? The goal now is 2024. That's an official goal? Yeah. Um, it appears that um, right now there may be delays in that, but delays are fine. Um, delays are necessary because it is incredibly dangerous work to go and send human beings into outer space and land them on the moon. I can believe it. Um, NASA has just built its, um, its SLS. That's their rocket to deliver um, man back to the moon. Um, that rocket is still being tested um, in Florida. Um, and the goal is to once again, get man on the moon. Um, this time there's going to be a woman on the moon. That's set in stone. There's going to be a person of color on the moon. That's set in stone also. Um, that goal may be delayed. It's often things like that with NASA are often delayed, but it's going to happen. We are going back to the moon. In fact, in fact, just last night I was laying in bed, ready to close my eyes and I clicking around and there was Apollo 13 on the movie with Tom Hanks. Hmm. And the last line of that movie, and it's amazing I'm down here today, but the last line of that movie, Tom Hanks says, I often wonder when we will be going back to the moon and who will that be? And we kind of know now, believe it or not. I forget when Apollo 13 was made, the movie. Um, but we are going back and we're going to a lot of places right now. NASA is going to a lot of places. I say we're, I'm not a NASA employee. I'm a NASA volunteer. I want to make that, that clear, Paul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself today, officially. Right. I know this is radio. I, I just made quotation marks <laughs> with my fingers. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, it happens all the time. Um, you know, you, when you start using your hands like that, it yeah. kind of affects your voice. It makes things better, if you ask me. Exactly. So I am speaking for myself, but um, mm. uh, going back to the moon is, is, is happening and a lot of other things are happening too. Now you said NASA's going places. Now, do you mean that literally? Do we have, what are maybe some of the plans that NASA has in the near future or maybe the distant future? Well, in the distant future, the distant future plan is, is of course, um, going to Mars, putting people on Mars. Um, but between now and then, there's a lot going on. Uh, I think NASA has um, altogether something like 80 missions currently in space. Um, and these, again, are, are mostly orbiters, um, NASA satellites, um, landers. We have, of course, landers on Mars now. Um, but there are some really, really cool ones, and I'd, I'd like to point a couple out quickly. If, if Absolutely, I, if you could. go ahead. One of my one of my um, favorite ones right now is called the Parker Solar Probe, which is visiting our star, our star of the sun. Um, and it's a very close encounter um, with the sun. Um, Parker was launched in August of 2018. It's now reached its point near the sun. Uh, the sun sits 93 million miles away from the Earth. Hmm. Um, by comparison, uh, the moon is roughly 235,000 miles away from Earth. So you can imagine um, it's taken Parker that long to get within about 3.8 million miles from the sun, which sounds like a lot. Um, but I, I did hear one NASA engineer say that that's like if you started on your own goal line 
of a football field and drove all the way down. You're on about the four yard line. That's how close you are to the sun right now. Hmm. Um, we've never had anything that close to the sun. So, um, and of course, it's an incredibly violent and hot place to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can imagine, you know. Uh, but the probe is going to be able to sit out there about um, 3.8 million miles from the sun's surface and, of course, collect all the data that is so important. Um, even though it's so incredibly hot and the radiation is so high, um, because of the way it's built and the engineering that's into this thing, um, the they have four suites of, of computers and things inside the probe, which are kept at, believe it or not, room temperature. Just behind walls and walls of right, insulation. Right, exactly. Um, it's amazing that that thing can sit there that close to the sun um, and operate. And so, so, so why is the sun important? Well, I don't think we need a solar system ambassador to tell us why the sun is important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all your, your, uh, your listeners can figure it out, you know I mean? But the sun is our, our star. Everything in our universe revolves around the sun. Uh, the sun gives us life as we know it. Without the sun, we don't have life as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of, of, of missions out there from NASA and other space agencies, um, foreign space agencies, that are constantly monitoring the sun because it's so important to us. We have to keep an eye on it. We have to know what it's doing. The sun, um, as it grows older, continues to grow hotter. Really? And the sun will eventually, um, for the lack of a better way to say it, be the, be the end of the world as we know it. It will turn into a red giant and engulf exactly. the planet eventually. A red giant. That's what it'll be. So we better that get could, to Mars. <laughs> that, could, that could be a hundred million years. That could be a few billion years from now. Mm. But um, from what scientists know, that, that's what will happen. So it, it, you know, it bodes well for us to keep an eye on the sun and to, and to watch it. Um, the European Space Agency also has a, an orbiter that sits exactly halfway between the, the Earth and the sun, which would be about 46 million miles away. Um, and it recently took the closest picture, photograph of the sun at 46 million miles away. The Parker Solar Probe can't do that. It's too close to take a photograph. It only collects... Um, data um which but, are uh, like temperatures and different it measures solar flares it measures the sun's you know aurora every, everything to do with the sun it's sending back that information mm. that we can constantly keep an eye on the sun and what it's doing um it was named for a um i believe his name is eugene parker who was a university of chicago scientist who was the leader in the field of studying the sun. And he recently just passed away a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, when, the, when it was launched, he was the first scientist that had a, uh, a mission named after him while he was still alive. Mm. Um, so kind of a, a neat story there. But um, keeping an eye on the sun is probably a pretty good idea, given everything that the sun means to our solar system. Everything in our solar system revolves around the sun. It is our only star. Um, it is everything to us and everything to life. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot can be explained as to why there isn't life on other planets like Mercury, which is closest to the sun. Um, it just couldn't take it anymore, I guess, for lack of a non-scientific way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the Parker Solar Probe is really, really neat. And I think we'll, we'll be hearing a lot about what they find out in the future. Wonderful. And that's very fascinating. I have so many more questions for you, Scott, and I want to ask them here in just one second. But first, let's take a quick break and give a quick shout out to our beloved sponsors. 
You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Got an old vehicle taking up space in your garage or rusting outside? Catholic Spirit Radio would love to have it. Turn your worn-out vehicle into a donation. Simply call 866-628-CARS or go to catholicspiritradio.com to click on the Donate Your Vehicle link. All right, we are back. This is Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and I'm here with Scott Pelican, an official NASA Solar System Ambassador. We were just talking about a few of the really interesting missions that NASA is conducting right now. One of them that we just mentioned was uh, uh, a something that is really close to the sun and providing a lot of important information about the sun. Mm-hmm. But you also mentioned one that is circling Mars or maybe on Mars. Could you tell us more about that? Sure, we are we are on Mars. We're rolling around Mars. I say we're, but you know, mm-hmm. NASA is rolling around uh, Mars. We're actually flying around Mars now too. Um, NASA's been at Mars for fifty years now. The first um, um, the first orbiter was uh, Mariner Four. That was in nineteen sixty four, um, and quite an accomplishment you can imagine. Um, that. Mariner 4 was actually able uh, to send back the first black and white photographs of the Martian surface, uh, which, of course, was amazing. And then in 1975, the uh, Viking spacecraft from NASA was the first to, to land on Mars um, and also send back, this time, color photographs. Um, since then, over 20 missions to Mars just from NASA. Of course, Russia um, has sent many, many missions to Mars. Um, right now, we have a number of, of, of landers and orbiters around Mars, but the, the most um, current one is, is Perseverance. Um, Perseverance landed on Mars um, in February of 2021. Um, the, the cool thing about pers- Perseverance, a couple things, um, as opposed to the other landers and previous rovers, is that, number one, it's autonomous. It makes its own decisions on where to go on Mars. Mm-hmm. When you think about NASA, the amazing robotics and engineering that goes that they can do is just spectacular. So we've got this this rover uh, that's going around saying, I think I'm going to go here. I think I'm going to go there. Um, it also brought along with it um, a little buddy called Ingenuity, and it is the first helicopter that is flying on Mars. I did not know this existed. What a sight that must be. Yeah. Um, it's proved that you can have, Mars has a very thin atmosphere. The atmosphere of Mars is like a hundred times less than ours. So you can get a tan is what you're saying. Yes, you can. <laughs> but I know nothing about aeronautics or flying, but I do know enough that you'd need, you need some, you need some atmosphere to get lift, mm-hmm. right? On a, on a, on a plane or a helicopter. Well, they able to figure out somehow to get this thing to actually um, have powered, controlled flight of a helicopter on on Mars. It's had about twenty flights now of its own up there. It flies ahead of the rover and scouts out areas and relays information back to it. Tells it where to go. Um, they um, landed in a crater called a Jezero crater, um, which of course they they look for places where they think they can find evidence of microbial life the best mm-hmm. chance because that's what they're really looking for that's what they're always looking for you know and now it's it spent some time at Jezero crater and now it's moving to an area called the delta um where they they, they hope for a better chance to find microbial life um in the past we've we've had landers that have scooped up some dirt on mars and put it inside its belly and 
and, and look through it there on the surface. Mm-hmm. What Perseverance is doing is actually collecting rocks, drilling down, collecting rocks, storing them in tubes, um, and dropping them onto Mars to be eventually brought back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be done later. Um, this, this rover does not have the capability of launching itself off of Mars and returning to Earth. So we've never looked closely at Martian rocks here on Earth yet. We're still no, waiting to we, do that. We've never brought rock rocks back to Earth, mm. and this mission is intended to do that. Now, when the retrieval will happen is, is up in the air. Um, that may not happen until nearly um, the year 2033 is the last one I've heard, quite a while thing about NASA is everything takes a long time. It's like the right. universe, you know, 14 to talking in billions of years. You know, it right. takes a long time. NASA has to make decisions on the money they put into projects, given the budget that they have, and when to do it. As, you know, at, at the same time, you're trying to go to the moon and you're doing all this other stuff. So retrieval of the rocks, I think, is being delayed a little bit by those kinds of things. But those rocks aren't, any, aren't going anywhere. They're, they're sitting there. They're going to leave them there in spots that eventually detect the technology um, will be developed where we can go down, pick up those things, get them back up in off the lunar, off the Martian surface, and somehow get them back to Earth, mm-hmm. where scientists can actually look at, at Martian rocks. Now, the big joke going around, of course, is that well, don't worry about that. Elon Musk will get there before then. He can right. he can grab those rocks for you and bring them home for you. You know. <laughs> well, no, yeah, you know what? I I really wanted to talk about this because we're talking about traveling to Mars, multiplanetary travel. Uh, the, the concept of humanity becoming a multiplanetary species was largely made popular or, or mainstream by Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, which is a privately held space exploration company. What do you think about Elon Musk? What do you and NASA think about SpaceX, and what can it do for or interplanetary travel and perhaps leading humanity to becoming a multiplanetary species. Well, I think it's, I think he's a pioneer. He's a, an amazing, and I'm talking only in terms of SpaceX and what he does for NASA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, um, and it, it, it's a little confusing, uh, but SpaceX um, has its own private space company, but in other words, um, space tourism, things like that. Not a lot, um, but they are deeply involved with NASA. NASA made a very smart decision some years ago. Um, and NASA has always contracted work, even from the first days. Hmm. Companies like Grumman or Boeing or some things like that back in the day, they were always contractors for NASA, building the lunar landers, building the, building rockets, things like that. They always knew that that's how it had to work. Um, but with, with SpaceX, they realized some time ago is that we need to have someone else build these things because we, we all know that uh, history has shown us that private industry is much better at building stuff on budget and you know at a decent dollar as opposed to the government doing, no matter what government agency we're talking about. Right. And they made a... a a decision that we're going to go this route. We're going to hire companies to get us back to the moon or get us to Mars. All right. And, and we're going to put out contracts and we're going to bid it out. Musk's company um, was in danger of going under until it got a huge contract with NASA on building what he has now, his Falcon rockets, which are amazing, amazing These things. things can go up and land again. They're reusable right, for right. Pete's sakes. What's so, that? So back in, back in the Apollo days, the rocket would go up and the first stage would separate and fall back into the ocean. And the second stage would 
burn up in the atmosphere or whatever, you know. I mean, with enormous amounts of money to for every launch. Mm-hmm. And we have a private um, person who's worked out ways to return those parts back to, to a pad and sitting in the middle of the ocean and, you know, and, and um, you know, reuse it amongst other things that private industry can do. So um, it's an enormous, enormous uh, benefit to NASA. It's been an amazing partnership. Um, um, most of NASA's, NASA was for the longest time, we were hitching rides, paying the Russians to hitch rides up to the International Space Station well, because we did, not, <laughs> we, did, we did not have our own launch systems mm. after the space shuttle program uh, to do that. Um, we recently have built um, our own rockets, NASA has, um, but the partnership with, with a company like SpaceX is, is night and day. Uh, and he's not the only one. Um, there are other companies. Um, Jeff Bezos at, at, at Blue Origin is mm. very much wanting to get into that business that, that uh, Elon Musk is in and SpaceX. In fact, I think uh, I think uh, Mr. Bezos is currently suing NASA and and Elon Musk because of a contract that didn't go his way. How does how does Blue Origin compare to the two though? To NASA and to SpaceX, these more well established and more trustworthy uh, space exploration companies. How does Blue Origin, you know, founded by Jeff Bezos, who mm-hmm. is not known for being a physicist, an astrophysicist, an astronaut, or anything of the sort, does it is it in the same league as NASA and SpaceX? Would you say? Um, on the large, heavy rockets that can deliver people to the, the International Space Station, he's not there yet, but he is building that rocket. Mm-hmm. I believe he's built he's building that rocket, and it's named after John Glenn, as a matter of fact. Um, Right now, he, we've seen his space tourism rocket that goes up and it carries um, Michael Strahan and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, who was the guy on Star Trek? Uh, he went up there also. Um, William oh, Shatner. Right. Yep, right. Yep. You know, he, he has a space tourism, that, that thing going on. Um, but he is in development of larger rockets and he very much wants to be in the same league as SpaceX. Is SpaceX got the jump on him and they've, proved, and they've got contracts with NASA and they've proven to be reliable and safe and economically good for NASA. Um, but I can guarantee you that Mr. Bezos and other companies um, are looking to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I have an interesting question. I kind of want to switch gears and talk about something a, a little bit different. We've got a few minutes here before the next break. For over a thousand years, astronomers, famous world-renowned historic astronomers have referred to space, the cosmos, as the heavens. I believe if you ask me that pondering the vastness and the wonder of space can often trickle right in to pondering the thoughts, the ideas of a God, you know, the heavens. What do you think about this? And and is there any bit of religiosity or even Christianity that's baked into space exploration or is it totally separate, would you say? And, And maybe on a personal note, because you don't want to speak for NASA when it comes to religion or anything. Right. But it does, does the thought of God, does it tie into your thoughts about the cosmos at all? If I'm making any sense. Oh, sure. Um, from a personal point of view, I mean, so much is unknown. You know, all of us have even, you know, the thing about NASA, it's so funny is I've come to know is that it's incredibly polarizing. You have, Lovers like me of NASA and you have haters. I hate to use the word. I hate to use the word hate. Mm-hmm. How about that? Um, so we'll call them skeptics. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we blowing this money up into the air and stuff like that? You know, we're 
we're looking to the unknown. We're looking for answers. You know, I, th- I think there is a moral obligation <clears throat> on our part to keep exploring, to keep discovering. So what will that lead us to? Um, that's the thing. We don't know. We don't know what, you know, what is out there, what's the, what the meaning of it all is. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, of course, I still myself wonder that and look for answers. You know, um, I personally believe in God. Um, NASA is a government agency. It has no stance on religion or, 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 or that kind of thing. Um, but I doubt there are very few people who go into space um, and don't come back thinking about things different than when, before they went up. You see your, your home planet in the distance is a little dot. I think mm-hmm. that'll get your gears turning about what's it all mean and where's it all come from. Right. Um, the, they've, we just launched something. They just launched something called the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the most powerful telescope ever built. Um, it's going to go show us things that we've never seen before. Um, and in the summer of this year, those images are going to be released back to the public. It's going to be quite an event. Um, you know, and if you can think, if you can wrap, the hard thing is you got to wrap your brain about around what we're looking at. Because we're talking, we talked a little bit before the show about light years and, and Einstein. And, you know, when, mm-hmm. when they send, they're going to send back images that they tell us are 14 billion years old. So you're not looking at what's going on now. You're looking at something that happened 14 billion years ago. If you can wrap your brain around the speed, right. of, <laughs> of, speed of light, you know, which is, I right. can't. Um, so what will we see? What will we see from 14 billion years ago? Uh, all of our minds can, can wander on that. And what does it mean? You know, what we're looking at. So it's I, so, f- Oh, continue. I, apologize. I, I, I hope I've somehow um, managed to answer that question um, without man- answering that question for NASA. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think you did a good job there. And it is interesting. You know, we look up at our night sky and we see all these little beautiful stars. We see the big dipper, but there's a good chance. In fact, a likely chance that those stars that we are looking at aren't actually there. We are looking at the residue, the light that is still, you know, making its way right here to earth, right to our eyeballs. But if we traveled at light speed to those actual stars in that exact direction, we would see that, hey, that star blew up millions of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's really an incredible thing. And well, here we're going to take a quick break and go to a commercial in just one second. But I can't wait to come back. Scott, I've got plenty more questions for you. But first, here's a quick word from our beloved sponsors. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Got an old vehicle taking up space in your garage or rusting outside? Catholic Spirit Radio would love to have it. Turn your worn out vehicle into a donation. Simply call 866-628-CARS or go to Catholic CatholicSpiritRadio.com to click on the Donate Your Vehicle link. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm Paul Garcia here with Scott Pelican, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. The conversation has been riveting up to this point, and I hope to continue with that trend. But, Scott, you were just telling me uh, during the break that, you know, we were talking about religiosity, about God, Christianity, and you said, hey, maybe we could revisit the story of Apollo 8. So I'll hand the mic over to you. What do you have to say about Apollo 8? Well, Apollo 8 um, was in 1968. Um, December of 1968. Um, And for if you're as old as myself, we remember 1968 as being such a tumultuous year. Um, We had the Vietnam War going. We had assassinations of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy that year, uh, just a year that was unimaginable. Um, But in the meantime, we were, we had till the end of that decade to uh, fulfill John Kennedy's dream or goal uh, to put a man on the moon. 
Uh, the first step to do there was to um, get men to the moon to orbit it, and that was the Apollo 8 mission. Um, had three astronauts, Frank Borman, uh, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. Um, and they had scheduled a um, they had scheduled a live telecast on Christmas Eve from the capsule, uh, December 24th, 1968, uh, back to Earth uh, to, to check in on the astronauts, astronauts and show it to the world. And, and NASA had told the astronauts, you know, there's going to be 500 million people watching you, uh, an incredible amount of people. Um, the entire world. And they said, you know, you should probably think of something kind of neat to say that would be helpful. And they, they, they said, well, what do you think? And they said, you guys decide. They gave them the opportunity to decide what to do. Um, so they mulled it over, kept it to themselves. First, they had some crazy ideas like, you know, telling, reading a Christmas story or acting like they were Santa Claus. And, and, and Frank Borman, the, the mission commander, thought, no, no, this has to be something that we just can't screw around with. It's got to be something as meaningful. But they were, they couldn't come up with anything. At some point, uh, Borman um, talked to a friend of his and told him the dilemma. They just could not think of anything to, to say uh, during the telecast on Christmas Eve of all times. And he said, and his friend said, well, let me think about it. And he couldn't come up with anything. But then he approached a friend of his who was a writer, I believe, and gave him the challenge. He said, Frank is looking for something. He gave any ideas. And um, he couldn't, but his wife... Um, this person's wife said, tell him to read from the book of Genesis. And they said, that's it. And he went back to Frank and said, what do you think about this? And um, he said, perfect. So they kept it to themselves, the three astronauts. And um, the camera came on on Christmas Eve with 500 million people watching them. And they showed, showed them around the cabin a little bit and things they were doing. And um, it got to a point that um, they said, okay, we're approaching the lunar sunrise. Um, and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we'd like to send to you. And Bill Anders said, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And he went on and read part of that passage. And then Jim Lovell continued and he read part of the passage. And then Frank Borman read the last part of the passage. And he ended up with, um, and from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, and Merry Christmas. And God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Wow. And you probably had about 500 million people with a little tear in their eye. And I, and I certainly remember that moment. It was, you watched it it live. Oh yeah. It was perfect. It was just what should have been said. And it was the wife of this friend of theirs who came up with that idea. And it was, especially on Christmas Eve, again, uh, a perfect moment and probably one of the most amazing um, memories in the history of NASA to this day lives on as an incredible, incredible moment. And those are the kind of things that, NASA can do. Those are the kind of things that draw people into it and the achievements. And like you said, giving people perspective on why we're doing it. Um, but I figured, although I got to be careful where I walk here, Paul, I figured if those astronauts can say that, I can say that on Catholic Spirit Radio. You're darn right. I agree wholeheartedly <laughs> with you. And what a beautiful story. Holy cow. And I tell mm-hmm. you, to be honest, I didn't know that story and I'm ashamed of myself because that is a good one. And we're talking a little bit about Genesis, and it's funny how Genesis and NASA oftentimes in space exploration tie together or coexist well in a lot of ways throughout history. 
I want to talk just a little bit about in 1935, it was Father George Slemiter. He was alongside Edwin Hubble. And in looking at Genesis, well, not in looking at Genesis, but through advanced mathematical calculations through the scientific method, he and Edwin Hubble came up with the theory known as the Big Bang. The Big Bang, as a lot of Catholics uh, know, and a lot of Catholics really don't like this idea, but a lot of Catholics know that, you know, the Big Bang, the explosion that created all, the theoretical, I should say, explosion that created all matter in the known universe, in the universe as we know it, coexists well with the story of creation in Genesis, the let there be light. I just want to know, have you ever, you know, thought about this thing, this this coincidence maybe uh, of the Big Bang? Father George Slemider was a Catholic priest, if I didn't already mention that. Uh, and in Genesis, you know, how does it all work together in your mind? And have you ever pondered these set of facts? Um, well, first of all, I did not see you, you. Now you told me something I didn't know. There you we know, go. You know, the, we're both learning. You said he was with uh, Mr. Hubble. The, yes, in the, 1935. Of the Hubble telescope fame. Yep, that's the one, you Edwin see, Hubble. How about that? Yeah. So, um, and now uh, we talked about the James Webb telescope. That's the, the next step in telescopes from Hubble, which has been amazing. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, speaking for myself, you know, why can't creation be the big bang and why can't the big bang be creation? You know, it seems to make sense to me uh, beyond that. Um, I don't really know what to say, but um, again, it's, it's why we explore, why we keep going out and keep going out and looking in my view um, for answers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, again, we have, a, I think we have a moral obligation to do that. Um, but um yeah, it makes sense to me that what, and it's kind of funny if you, if you even listen to scientists and physicists today, no one really has specific answers. It's theories and it's maybes and we think and it could be, you know, even today because it is so, the, the enormity of the universe, when you figure out we're just one little small solar system in the universe, mm. is beyond our imagination. It's beyond what we can even lay in bed and even dream about. That's right. how infinite it is or big it is, however you want to use it. Is, is space infinite? Does it keep going? Or? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the James Webb Space Telescope will show us that. I, I don't know. That's what they're kind of trying to look for. I don't know. Whether it does end or whether it doesn't, both answers are incredible and awe-inspiring. It's like, it ends? What does that mean? Or it doesn't end? What does that mean? You know, exactly. it, it, both are astonishing answers yeah exactly and i and again mankind needs to keep looking for that right and within the catholic church the catholic church has has had a long history of really supporting space exploration science astronomy if you ignore you know some of the maybe minor blemishes uh with um what was a famous astronomer's name from back in the day that they put on house arrest who was that that was uh, aristotle i believe anyway <laughs> yeah he was a famous astronomer Right. Well, anyway, aside from all of that, the church has had a large interest in space exploration, but even also the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligent life or just extraterrestrial life in general. What does NASA, do they have any official statements made about extraterrestrial life, the possibility of it, the confirmation of it, anything like that? And what do you think about the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligent life? And in normal people terms, we're talking about aliens. <laughs> I've met a few. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
Wow. That, that it, it's, it's, it's a tough question. Um, first of all, life. Now we could be talking about microbial life, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's gotta be out there. I mean, I've always believed it has to be, again, going back to the vastness of what we're talking about, you know, and and how the earth is so small in comparison to the sun, where we can fit 1.3 million earths inside the sun and beyond. Um, I, I don't, I, I guess, and this is a non-religious statement that I, I, I think there is. I think there is. Um, but. We just can't seem to find it. But boy, we haven't gone very far. Right. We haven't gone very far. Not far at all. We've just stepped out the front door as far as exploration into the universe, you know. And we've, we've only spent a moment searching for it since 1960. My goodness, we're talking 13 billion years ago, you know, and, and things like that. So um, I, I think it's out there to be found. I really, really do. You know what? I agree with you. Mm-hmm. And John, you know, we're talking here. If I say anything that's heretical, you just cut it out. But uh, I mean, <laughs> why not? Why not? You know, why wouldn't God or couldn't God create different origins of life somewhere else? Maybe he made another Adam and Eve equivalent somewhere else. And maybe they didn't commit the original sin. Maybe they're doing a lot better. Maybe they've had a million years of technological uh, advancement on us. And they've been coming over here and looking at us for for quite a while. Who knows? It's fun to kind of ponder the possibilities, though. Yeah, you're right. And 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 you're right in your statement that NASA, I, I think, has always supported that, that kind of thing. I, I spoke to my, my boss at NASA before coming on this show, and she, she told me, you know, that... Um, you know, there's, there's, I mentioned the, the Vatican has an observatory, a couple of observatories, you know, mm-hmm. so there, there, there's a, there is that interest in all that too, that goes throughout the Catholic church. So, um, so yeah, I hope I'm around long enough. You will, you'll be alone. I uh, hope long so. Enough, Paul, I'm not sure about me and John, if we're going to be around long enough, but, um, we'll see. Oh, like I said, at the very beginning, you look great. I think you'll be around for quite a long time, you know? <laughs> I hope so. Because <laughs> I, I tell you, I put a lot of work into the solar system thing in the last last year or so. So I hope I get a chance to keep going out there and, and talking about it. And I really do appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure is all ours, Andy. We're not done yet. You know, I all still right. got plenty of questions okay. here. Okay. Well, I'm retired, man. I got nowhere to go. That's what I'm talking about. So yeah. Scott, you ever get any inside information from NASA or anything? Anything that you could share that would be Oh yeah, I got a hotline right to uh, Bill Nelson, the administrator. Uh, yeah, they make no. contact with extraterrestrials. <laughs> no, it, it is, it is uh, interesting, this program. Boy, they really support us. I mean, I actually have a NASA training I've got to attend this afternoon still. Mm. And this is on a, uh, a mission that's going to Jupiter. Uh, and they're visiting the moon um, Europa uh, right now. And a lot of scientists now believe the best chance, we're talking about life, right. um, may not be on other planets. It may be on the moon's of other planets. I've the, heard the this. planets around Jupiter are ice covered. Um, and that's where they think perhaps um, life can best be found. So they're kind of shifting gears on where they want to look for, for microbial life. Uh, and Europa um, is um, one that they're visiting right now with the, with uh, the Juno spacecraft and I actually have a, a program I have got to attend this afternoon. They're constantly about weekly. We, they give us um, um, learning programs we can sit in on. Mm. Um, through the computer and, and, and learn about missions. They want us to be able to obviously to speak intelligently about these things, you know, uh, and expand on um, what we say as we, as we present these events. So I sit on about in and about one every, every, every week now. Um, so they provide us with all the information. They're 
very good about supporting us in this program. Um, and the big thing coming up again is this James Webb Space Telescope. When those first images come out in July, we're going to have huge events. I'm trying to plan my own where we're going to be able to sit down with the public and say, okay, you're, you're looking back 13 billion years now, you know, and you decide, I'm not going to tell them what they're looking at, but I'm going to tell them you decide what you think you're looking at, you know, and so we're, we're planning those. That's really the next big event for the solar system ambassadors is the release of these uh, images from this telescope. But um, NASA is incredibly supportive. Give us anything we want. When I've got a couple of programs coming up in elementary schools. They got me little things for the kids to give out and things like that. Those elementary kids scare me a lot more than you scare me. Oh yeah, Paul. I, I guarantee you. You know, I'm just wait, I'm just waiting for those questions. You know. Oh man, yeah. yeah. Well, those questions. It's really a beautiful thing. They don't have the boundaries of what is deemed appropriate questions yet. So wherever their curiosity leads them, that's what's going to come out of their mouths. And I think that's kind of awesome. The only way, great ones. The only way we keep going through this or going forward with this is through that STEM education with young kids, science, technology engineering, mathematics, that's what gets you into outer space, those right. things. So they, they really want us to push that with, and teachers now do push that, you know, we need that more in education. It's the only way a, a, something like NASA survives is that we have the people, those kids who are learning that. The people I work with at NASA, they're all like 25 years old. They're engineers, they're Whoa. scientists. It's amazing. It just blows my mind. These people are so smart so into it, so energetic. It really makes you feel good about what they're, what they're doing, where they come from. Mm -hmm. I work with my bosses at Caltech University in Pasadena. That's where the program is run out of. All kinds of universities are involved in NASA, organizations, things like that uh, across all states. Um, so there's a lot of energy out there, but they've got to keep the young people interested. They've got to know those STEM abilities. Um, so it's going to be interesting when I go see those fifth and sixth graders and they, and they throw questions my way and I'm just mm -hmm. not a clue. And it, it's interesting, you know, you said you talked to all these young kids that work at NASA and they're just mind-blowingly intelligent and it gives you a lot of hope for the future. I just posted a video the other day where I went around, um, central Illinois, well, I went around Bloomington and I asked people of all different ages, demographics, what their thoughts were on, and I hope this can go up, John, but I asked people, you know, what are your thoughts on, do you think President Joe Biden has done a good job so far? I just wanted honest answers. And the answers I got, uh, I posted the video on Facebook and it got, you know, in a couple of days now, it's got over 60,000 views. It's a big video and people are commenting left and right. Oh, I lost all my faith in the children, the youth, and, you know, people from both sides of the aisle are really complaining, saying, oh, the child, our, our future is doomed. But for as many kids as you think, or I should say young people that you think are ding-dongs, there's just as many or at least a fair bit of incredibly gifted, intelligent, hardworking people striving for the betterment of humanity and the world as we know it. You know, it just depends where you're looking that will determine your amount of hope for the future of humanity. Yeah, exactly. I, I, again, it's, it's incredible the the people I see who who work. I call them kids; they're totally adults, you know. Right. But but in their twenties, um, and um, I, I don't know if you have time for a, a, another story. Oh, no, yes, we do. John said we can go as long as we want, so you just go ahead. And this this relates to the um, being of that age group, right? And it's like my favorite NASA story um, when um. When Apollo 11 was heading down to the lunar surface, okay, on July 20th, 1969, um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin 
they were in the lunar module. Now, there were no seats in that thing. You had to stand up in there and ride that thing down to the lunar surface. Oh. So this is, get, this is getting tense, okay? So they're, they're heading down. Armstrong is on the left. He's commanding it. He's flying the thing down there. Aldrin's on the right. And Aldrin is um, giving them you know, altitude and speed and things like that. And they're getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden, an alarm light comes on inside the lunar module. I believe it's a 1210 alarm. And Armstrong radios back to Houston, 1210 alarm. What's this all about? And they said, hold on, you know. And he said, no, I can't hold on. What's this all about? You know, and they look over, they look over to one guy. His name was Jack Garman. He was a um, computer analyst. And he, now Garman had prepared notes that he had laminated on his desk on everything that might come across his desk on the landing. And one of them said, 1210 alarm. And he looked at it and it was a computer overload, but he, he made a decision. Um, it's fine. We can still land. So he said, go. We're good. Keep going. Okay. Backed up there. Go. You're good. And they go a few more feet. Another alarm goes off. 12, 12 alarm. They all look at Jack Garman. Jack, what are we doing? He says, you're fine. Go. We're good. Land. Okay. Moments later, they land on the moon. Now, what makes that story so amazing to me is that when Jack Garmin made that call when the whole world was waiting for Jack Garmin to make that call. He was 24 years old. I'm 24. <laughs> now, I could see my son, Aaron. We talked about Aaron making that call. Right. He's about 24. I don't know. I don't know. But he was 24 years old when he made that call of landing that thing on the moon. And that's the kind of age group of people I see now working at NASA that I see and work with on these training sessions, the scientists, the engineers, it's just crazy. It's interesting because at that age, you know, your brain is still malleable. You are still learning at a firing rate, you know. And so these kids, it makes sense that, you know, when they're at the cutting edge, this is as advanced as technology and math and science has ever been in the history of the world. And their brain is perfect to handle it. So, of course, there's a lot of people and literally in that specific age group, you know, in their mid to late 20s, they're working at NASA. You know, it shouldn't freak people out, you know. Because no, these no. guys, they've got the mental capacity to handle that stuff. Yep. And the energy and the curiosity mm -hmm. and everything they need. So, yeah. That's incredible. 24 years old, making such a massive decision that would shape the course of humanity as we know it. That's incredible. Yeah. My favorite NASA story. That's awesome. Makes me feel kind of like a bum though. <laughs> Talking on the radio. <laughs> well, we need here, bums too. Yeah. <laughs> We're all important here. <laughs> hey, I just got a couple more questions here. Do you think we'll be on Mars in the next uh, few years? When do you think we'll be on Mars, if at all? So uh, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, who's in charge of NASA now, um, had a state of NASA um, speech in March. He said 24, um, yeah, 2040 to walk on Mars. That's, that's where they're at now with that. Um, will Elon Musk beat them there? It's very possible. I thought they were working together. Are they kind of competing? Well, Elon can still do what he wants. He's a private company. Mm. Now, Elon has said he, he, plans on, um, he plans on dying on Mars. He said, hopefully not in a crash landing, but he does plan on, <laughs> he does plan on dying yeah. on Mars. It's good to be Elon. Yeah. Um, so maybe he might beat us there, you know. Um, but Elon's still doing his own thing. But he's a few of them. His company is making money with space tourism and, and NASA. But um, that's the goal. And I think there's it's our it's our nearest neighbor that we could, you know, have. I mean, the weather's not the best. You know, sometimes on Mars you might have a day that's 120 degrees below zero, but you also actually get a 70 degree day on Mars. Mm -hmm. um, so it's you know compared to Mercury, you know, you're not going to go there. 
can't breathe on Mars, though, can you? You need a helmet. We're going to need a lot of help. And they got a, they got a lot to figure out and a lot to do. So, you know, you go back to budgets and, and trying to figure out all the money and when do you spend it leading up to that point, you know. Um, NASA's budget is only about, it's like, I think it's a lot less than people think. Um, the, the budget in President Biden's 2023 budget has NASA at $26 billion. Hmm. Um, and that's like less than half of 1% of our overall total federal budget. Um, but you've got to be a good steward of that to really decide when and where to spend it. You know, if you start having cost overruns on getting to the moon, that's going to delay getting to Mars or going back and picking up those rocks off of Mars and things like that. So um, a lot of that is dependent upon how other things in the program are going. NASA is constantly being bombarded by people from universities and scientists around the world who want NASA to go here and want NASA to go there. And, you know, we, we've got to go, we got to go to Neptune. They're they're going, come on, spend the money. And and you gotta, they've got the administrators have to make the decisions on where we're going next, what we're doing next, you know, not to mention, you know, your normal satellites and things like that. So um, it's a tough call, but right now the goal is 2040 to put a, a human being on Mars. 2040. Got it. And I've heard a lot of people say SpaceX is making the rapid gains that it is because it's a private company. You know, when you work with the federal government and you get your funding from the federal government, there's an awful lot of red tape and a lot of phone calls, a lot of logistics that have to go on for any decisions to be made. Whereas Elon Musk could just say, do the thing, they do it now. Yeah. 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 Um, But they do need each other. Absolutely. Um, They do. Um, We can't just explore space um, with private industry. Um, Private industry does, I mean, how do you make money, like say, go to Pluto? If you're a private industry, you don't make money going to Pluto. You just go there because you want to go there. But NASA wants to go to, I'm just throwing Pluto out there. We're not, I'm not saying we're going to Pluto. It's not a plan. <clears throat> you, you know, NASA sets the goals to, for discovery and exploration. And that's where bring in private industry to keep doing that. Most private industries probably would see no reason to go to these places because there's no money in going to those places. Right. Unless it's a space tourism kind of a thing, you know, where there are, which is a real deal. People are, the the space tourism industry is going to be big and it's going to be huge. And people are, companies are going to make money off of it and people are going to want to go. And it's going to really get crowded up there really get crowded up there. You think so? I do. I do. Uh, there was just a, a flight that went to the International Space um, Station with three space tourists on it who each paid $55 million to take that ride. Hmm. Now, that's a business model. If you can sell $55 <laughs> million seats, you got yourself a business. Right. You know, and um, um, so it, it is, a, it's not just joyrides. People accuse Bezos and of these guys of doing joyrides. And to some degree they are, mm. but there are people lined up who want to take these rides. And every person I've seen get off one of those Jeff Bezos flights where they go up and they come down, you know, people say, oh, what's the big deal? Well, every person I've seen step out of that rocket when they got back to earth, the first thing they say is that they just had a life changing experience. Sure. And they have a look in their face like, oh my, what did I just do? And if that's your business, if you can sell that to people, a life-changing experience, you got yourself a business there because people will line up to do that. And there's plenty of folks who can afford to do it. Right. And if one day I get to afford to do it, I'm, I'm doing it as well, because right. that sounds incredible. <laughs> but Scott, 
I have one more question for you. You know, the, the owner of this whole thing, Anne, wanted me to ask you this. She said, Uh-oh. for the people in central Illinois, uh, I've heard NASA's doing something with agriculture. Could you tell me maybe a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, agri- uh, NASA's been involved in um, satellite. For 50 years, they've had satellites called the Landsat uh, in space. You know, we're not always heading out to outer space. They're looking back on Earth, you know, tracking um agricultural tracking, you know, rainfall, water, things like that. So for 50 years, we've had all kinds of satellites that assist agriculture um, <clears throat> on monitoring those kinds of things and measuring those kinds of things. Um, and just recently, there was, a, I believe, some sort of agricultural convention down in New Orleans um, called the Commodity Classic, where for the first time, NASA had a huge presence at this, some kind of a farm show or, you know, nationwide show. Uh, that NASA really wants to reach out to the farming industry, um, the USDA, and those kind of things on what they can do for farming because it's becoming such a concern to, f- to feed the world. You know, yeah. um, NASA can can monitor, we, they can measure, um, they can provide all the kinds of data that the farming industry needs, um, and then they can use whatever, do whatever they want with that data. Um, but it's there for them, and they want to get that out there. It's not a huge part of NASA's budget. Um, but that information is 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 there for for farm the farming industry to use, and I'm sure they know that. But NASA has really put on a special effort just this year to get that information get that information out there. A satellite will, fi- will fly 438 miles in the air, and they can look at mm. not just a vast amount of farmland; they can look at a singular farm field and break it down into how much water is here or there, or when crop production will be, or what the yield might be. So uh, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of my ballpark here, but from the little bit I've been able to, to read recently, uh, they're making a big push to continue to work with agriculture and the things they can do with their Landsat satellites they have up there. Wow. Absolutely incredible. Scott, the conversation has been absolutely marvelous. I've learned so much and it's been very intellectually stimulating and it's obvious, you know, why, why you would be so passionately interested in something like NASA, because it's a great organization. It's doing a lot for humanity. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's truly been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, John. And thank you, Ann, mm-hmm. an old, uh, an old uh, LP high school alumni of mine. Oh, no way. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Or is it alumnus? I always get that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Beats me. But hey, thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, also the host of the Paul Garcia Show on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And that was Scott Pelican, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Thank you again so much for listening. God bless and have a great week. You've been listening to Catholic Conversations. Download our podcasts at catholicspiritradio.com. 